heaven. What's heaven going to be like? Heaven to me is like an eternal sunrise with the glow of the morning, the light of the fields. The more I think about heaven, the less I crave of the world. I'm reminded of the verse that says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. For me, the treasure in the field is his grace. And for that, I want to worship him. It's his grace and his love that allows me in. Without it, I don't even have a spot. And that has to be worth far more than gold. There's a principle that that just runs throughout life um, that's very strong. And uh, we all experienced um, the uh, ramifications of this principle. And it's the sowing and reaping principle. Um, so with that in mind, if, if, I, if I give you a sentence, um, a statement, I, I bet you can finish it for me. And you, it's okay to do it out loud. You reap what you... Okay. You get what you have... You get sowing and reaping, you get what you have coming to you. You get what you have coming to you. Or you, yeah, you get what you've given. You get back. That's true. What goes around comes around. Yeah. I hope he gets what he deserves. Do you want me to say it the other way? I hope she gets what... (laughs) And that plays out. That plays out in life. The convicted criminal gets uh, a prison sentence. Plays out in the other way. If you study hard, you're much more likely to get good grades. There's cause and effect. It's pretty much foundational, universal to human life. Uh, It's relatively predictable. And and for that, um, we're grateful. I mean, that's that's a good thing that operates in our lives, that, that relatively speaking, you can predict that what you sow, you'll reap. You know what to expect. That, that a penny saved is a penny earned, not a penny lost. Although in today's economy, I don't know. Can we have negative interest? Can it go backwards? I guess it can, can it, maybe? Yeah, you know, you, you want that to be pretty predictable. You know, I, I think maybe I would be disappointed if, if I got down uh, to the end of life or got to the, the, the next life and found out that if I had eaten twice as much, my waistline would have shrunk. I mean, you know, but, but that principle d- just doesn't work that way, does it? At least that's not your experience so far, is it? But there, there are exceptions to the sowing and reaping principle. And we see those played out from time to time. There, there are exceptions. Sometimes financially responsible, careful people suffer great losses. 
Maybe you've seen it. Maybe it's happened to you. Sometimes very healthy, very healthy and fit people, I mean, in good shape, you know, can, can run, can move, can seem to be doing very well. They look healthy and fit and trim and all of that. Sometimes people like that have heart attacks. There's another major exception that happens to the sowing and reaping principle. And this is a really, really good one. The, the former exceptions that, that I just talked about are, are a result of the fall they're, they're, that we viewed last week, the result of, of sin and how it's entered the world and entered our lives, the results of brokenness. The, the, because, because of sin and brokenness, that's why people lose things. That's why we suffer loss of any kind. Because of sin and brokenness is why there's sickness in the world and why seemingly healthy people sometimes are struck down. But there's another major exception, and this is a good one to that sowing and reaping principle. It's a result of who God is, who we've sung about Him and read about Him to be this morning, a God of love and mercy. And that exception that He presents to us is called grace. It's His grace. Grace presents an exception to the whole thing about you get what you deserve. And sowing, I, I, don't want, I don't want you to be mistaken here this morning in what I'm saying. Sowing and reaping is a reality. You've sowed and you've reaped good and bad. You've sowed bad seed, reaped bad produce. You sowed good seed, received good fruit. Sowing and reaping is a reality, but, but God's grace is an instrument that, that can play a, a different song. Moved by His everlasting love, His unending love, which we're told about over and over again in the Scriptures, God can move in such a way that we don't get the consequences that we deserve. You hear me? And there's a great story. In these early books of the, the Scripture that we're going through called the Law, they're not just a list of laws. There's, they're full of stories, great stories that give guidance and instruction to us, which really the Hebrew word for law means guidance, instruction, truth. In the, in the, in the great stories of Genesis, the last third of the book of Genesis, the first book in your Bible, there's a, a story about brothers. Jacob is the father of these brothers. Jacob, whose other name is Israel. It is from Jacob that the nation of Israel comes. And he has 12 sons. You can read about it. 12 sons by four different uh, women. Two wives and two sort of wives. Servants of his other wives. Man, there's a lot of complicated stuff in the Old Testament. Are you finding that if you're reading through the Scripture? I mean, especially relationship family-wise. Whoo! A lot of stuff going on. Uh, Twelve sons by four women. I don't know. That just sounds complicated to me. You know? That sounds like that's bringing a lot of stuff to the table. And, and in this, we're told, in the account, we're told this. He had two favorite sons out of the twelve. Not coincidentally, they came from his favorite wife. 
Her name is Rachel. And he had two sons from her. Their names are Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel actually didn't, uh, didn't survive long after the, the birth of her younger son, Benjamin. And Joseph became really, the, several years older than Benjamin, became his father's favorite son, and it became obvious to the other brothers, his older brothers. He was given a very special multicolor coat. You can read about it in the scripture here. Maybe you know the story from when you were a child. If not, this, this is, Joseph's a character you ought to teach your children about. And he had this special multicolor coat, and he also kind of had this side job uh, of reporting to his father on the activities of his older brothers. Uh, they were managers of their father's livestock, which was large, and Joseph was to report on what was happening with the brothers back to their father. Um, I don't know if tattletale is a word we could use for him or not, but, I mean, you can maybe, maybe make that conclusion. Joseph also was a young man of great dreams. And he had two great dreams that were told about in uh, Genesis chapter 37, and, and he shared these with his family. And both dreams basically boiled down to this. If these dreams came true, it meant that everybody in the family, all the brothers and including the, and the father, we're going to bow down to Joseph. Now, if you had a sibling who shared that dream with you, I think most of, you's reaction would, most of our reactions would be, oh, really? Yeah. Well, his brothers had that reaction and more. They got fed up with Joseph. And at one point, when they're about 60 miles away, which in translate that to our culture now, it'd be like 600 miles away. They're 60 miles away from their home with the flocks, and they came up with a plan to kill Joseph. Had enough. Going to kill him, going to throw him in a pit. The wild animals will come along and, and tear him up, and then they'll be able to go back and tell a half-truth to their father that wild animals uh, ate Joseph. One of the older brothers, Reuben, got a little concerned about all of this, and the story goes that the Reuben said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in the pit. Let the wild animals do, do that job for us. And it says that Reuben had a secret plan to go back and rescue Joseph at a later time. So they did throw him down in the pit. And when they did that, one of the other brothers, Judah, who seems to have been a very clever um, planning person, Judah found a way to succeed at getting rid of Joseph and also do something that most people like to do, and that's make some money. No, let's not kill him. Let's sell him to the slave traders passing by on their way to Egypt. And we'll, all, we'll be rid of Joseph and we'll also make some money. And so that's just what happened. They pulled it off. They lied to their father, Jacob. They took the multicolored coat back. It was some animal blood put on it and said, your, your son's dead and we're sorry and, and all of that. In the meantime, they all had some silver jingling in the pockets of their robes. Judah's life, uh, is we continue to find out more about him in Genesis chapter 38 and that his deceitful trends continue. Now hang with me. Uh, if, you, if you start reading Genesis 38 right now, off your phone or in, your, in the Bible that you brought with you or whatever, 
If you start reading that now, I'm not going to be upset with you, but you're just going to get engrossed, and you're going to say, you're probably not going to be listening to what I'm saying, because this is some weird, wild stuff, like Johnny Carson used to say, some really weird, wild, wacky stuff going on in Genesis chapter 38. I'm even going to use this word, nasty. There's some nasty stuff going on in Judah's life, Genesis chapter 38. I'll try to summarize it a little bit. By this time, Judah has three sons. Uh, the first one's name is, is Ur. <laughs> I know in Hebrew it wouldn't play out this way, but for us in English, that's just kind of funny, isn't it? What's your son's name? Ur. Uh, Ur. Oh, yeah, Ur. Um, anyway, uh, it comes time these, these sons are grown, or, or the older ones are grown, and, and uh, as in most cases in those cultures, their marriages are arranged. And it's arranged for, for uh, Ur to marry this uh, young woman named Tamar. And he marries her. But then the short summary of Ur's life is that he was a really wicked man. And God took his life. And after that happened, uh, there, there's an ancient custom that was common in not only the Hebrew culture, but others as well. There, it was called Leverite marriage. And, and it's, it's this principle, catch this right here, to, to prevent widows, um, widows from being poor and destitute. The custom was this, and it was really a, not just customary, it was like basically a law, a tribal law. If, uh, if, if a man dies and leaves a widow, instead of leaving her poor and destitute, one of the other close relatives, usually a brother, takes her as his wife so that she can be supported and not be poor and destitute. So son number two of Judah, Onan, marries Tamar. But the summary of Onan's life is much like his brother Ur's, and it says he was wicked and God took his life. And so now Tamar is left a widow again. Jacob see, I mean, excuse me, Judah sees a pattern that has developed here. Do you see the pattern? Evidently, it's not really good luck to marry Tamar, okay? And Judah doesn't want his, his third and younger son, Shelah, to, to, to marry her. He doesn't want to see him marry her and, and die young also. So he says, listen, uh, Shelah's too young right now. We'll, we'll take care of Tamar for right now, and you, you live as a grieving widow, and in time... Shayla will become your husband and support you and care for you. Although it says he had no intention of letting this happen. Judah did not want Shayla to ever marry Tamar. A few years go by, and it gets really, really messy. And just something, a life lesson here. Sin always gets messy. Okay? You can make the choice to go against God's direction and God's laws and what God's speaking through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. You can make the choice to go against it, and like it says, for a season, it seems like you made a pretty good choice. You're getting some stuff out of it. But eventually, sooner or later, you know it, don't you? It's not going to end well. It's going to get messy, bad messy. That's what happens here. 
here's the stuff. I mean, Tamar discovers and realizes that her father-in-law has really no intentions of ever letting her marry one of, uh, another of his sons and being truly taken care of and not being a poor and destitute widow. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute. And the whole prostitute thing in, that, in this culture it was often related to tribal religions of the area and fertility of the ground and all of this kind of stuff. And, and yeah, Jacob and his family are right in the middle of all that kind of culture. And so he's away visiting and he comes across during the season of, of uh, planning and he comes across who he thinks is a temple prostitute, if you can wrap your head around that. He doesn't realize that it's his daughter-in-law. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And then a few months later, this, this whole thing is obvious. Tamar's pregnant, and she's found out to be pregnant. She has no husband. So the decision is, we're going to kill her. We found out she disguised herself as a prostitute, been living that way. And Judah himself says, yeah, that's what ought to happen. But she had an ace in the hole. You can read the story. And she had proof of who it was that has fathered this child. And it was Judah. And she had the goods on him. And it came out. And Judah confessed. He admitted it. And twin sons were born out of that. Now that is a big fat mess, isn't it? And so far, it, when you get to the end of, of chapter 38 of Genesis, there's two horrible things about Judah that we know about. He sold his brother into slavery and lied about it. And, and for all things we can see, he just got away with it. And then he had this awful thing go on with his daughter-in-law and all the stuff and and other than admitting it and owning up to it, it we don't see any other real ramifications for it. It seems that he's done some really terrible things and he has not gotten what should be coming to him. Now, 20 years or so go by. This is all in the Bible, trust me. Read these, read these chapters, Genesis 37 through 50. 20 years or so go by and... And Joseph, the brother sold into slavery after multiple trials and a lot of tough stuff in his life down in Egypt as a slave and a servant, good things and bad things. But after multiple trials, he's been blessed by God. He's been obedient to God. And he's become the prime minister of Egypt. Second only to the ruler, the emperor Pharaoh. The second most powerful person in the world. At that time. Egypt at this time is the most powerful nation in the world. And Joseph's second in command. Something happens. Uh, famine, a great famine hits the whole Mediterranean world, the whole Middle East. And uh, Egypt, because of Joseph's wisdom and direction from God in dreams, because of the wisdom that, that Joseph's been given from God, Egypt has plenty of food, surplus. And so everybody in the world starts heading to Egypt 
to try to get food for their families, to take back to their countries, their nations, their people, including Judah and his brothers. They head down to Egypt. I'm going to try to make this long story short here for you. Long story short. Genesis chapter 45. In Genesis chapter 45, there's an incredible scene. One of my favorite scenes in all the stories of the Bible that happens. In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph is reunited with his brothers. And he reveals his identity to them. And he saves their lives and the lives of their families. And when you think about what Judah and the rest of the brothers have done to him, and you see the scene in Genesis chapter 45, it occurs to me that sometimes we don't get what we deserve. You recognize that? Did we already get that statement up there? Okay. Sometimes we don't get what we deserve. Listen to Joseph, Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. He says to his brothers, don't be upset. I mean, they, they, think, they think he reveals himself and they remember what all they've done to him and they think, oh, it's over. And he says, don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. And then look at, look at this scene, Genesis 45, verse 15. It says this, Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them, and after that they began talking freely with him. I mean, this great family reunion, in spite of what they've done. Sometimes we don't get what we deserve. Now let me ask you this. Do you like that? Do you like that exception that sometimes we don't get what we deserve? Or is there something about that that just, that just makes you want to say, well, that's just not fair. It's just not right. Where's the justice? I don't want you to raise your hands, but you might even have somebody in your life right now that if you were honest, you would say, I hope they get what's coming to them. I hope they reap what they've sowed. Hmm? But for you, For ourselves, this whole thing about I might not get what I deserve, Whew, I like that. For other people, we tend to want justice, and for ourselves, we like mercy. Mercy sounds good, doesn't it, when you're in trouble, when you've done wrong? But for somebody else, I mean, do you remember what happened in, in 
Genesis 37, 38, back there. Do you remember, do you remember what we talked about, Judah? <laughs> he's, a, he's a rotten guy. Am I wrong? I mean, when you read about him, is, I mean, this is not a good person. Let me throw out another thought or observation here. God's grace is not reserved for good people. And one of the questions that's asked pretty often in Scripture is this question, who among us is truly good? God's grace is not just reserved for good people, but instead shows how good God is. The end of the book of Genesis and the end of the story of these brothers is a, is a beautiful scene. Genesis chapter 50, Jacob's entire family, including Jacob now, the old father, has, has been reunited. All the sons and all, all their families, all together. And, and in Genesis 49, Jacob, before he, before he knows he's going to face the end of his life, he brings all his sons together and pronounces a blessing, and, which was more than just a blessing in those days. It was basically saying, this is what's going to happen to you. And it's very interesting when he lays his hands on Judah. And we know what kind of guy Judah's been. His father lays his hands on Judah and says, Your descendants will be kings. And in fact, from you, from your line, your family line, will come the king of kings. And one of the names of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Sometimes we don't get what we deserve. Jacob dies. And the brothers uh, have a, a momentary moment of, uh, I guess if, you, if it's momentary, you would have a momentary moment. They, they have a little, a little brief uh, uh, panic anxiety attack. Right, right there near the end of Genesis chapter 50, around verse 14, 15. Their dad's dead now, and, and all of a sudden it kind of hits them the way Joseph has treated them, and they ask this question, is this too good to be true? Now that dad's gone, is Joseph going to pay us back with what we really deserve? Genesis chapter 50, verse 16. Look at this with me. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. And when Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. And then his brothers came 
and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Well, you might say, Pastor, that is a nice story. That's a, a, you know, well, maybe not nice. Some of that stuff, you nasty stuff you were talking about earlier is kind of bizarre, kind of weird, kind of. I don't really want to see that movie. It just, um, well, so it was an interesting story, Pastor. And there's probably, there's probably some sinner here today who really needs to hear that. I want us to just, as we wrap up here, kind of shift over to the New Testament for a couple of moments. And I want to ask you this, I think, fundamental life question. Do you see your need for grace? Do you see it? I mean, you can look at Jacob's story. I mean, Jacob, yeah, and then Judah and go, well, I see how they need it. You know, I grew up in a, a very good family. I'm, I'm a very blessed person as far as my heritage goes and, and what was poured into my life, the, the amount of love and goodness and instruction and blessings I've never really wanted for much of anything and, and been told since I, was, since I could remember hearing anybody's voice every day, I I bet there hadn't been a day when somebody hadn't told me they loved me. And somebody from my family. And I uh, grew up in the church, and um, I never outwardly rebelled in great ways. And and, uh, in my opinion, my story would be very boring, especially compared to Judas which I guess most of our stories would be boring compared to Jews, but if you have a more interesting story than that, you might write it down for me. I don't know if I could take it straight on, but uh, um, I remember being a young adult. and having some secret sins. And then having some sins that in my life that were, that were played out, but they're just not graded as harshly as some other sins are. I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. And I remember some moments where it began to come together of how desperately I needed the grace of God. That I was not 
truly good. And without his forgiveness and his grace, I'd be miserable. I'm asking you this morning, do you see your need for grace? Here's a reality check for us. A reality check with some very good news for those who will receive it. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read you a few verses. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from, a de- from the dead uh, along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us. As shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Say, what's the connection of this whole story you've told us from the first book of the Bible and then leaping over to a letter written by a man centuries later? I hope that what we discover today is this. You see, grace, God's grace, isn't just a part. It's not just a piece of what it means to live a Christian life, to live with and, and for God. It, it's the whole thing. And we don't have anything without the grace of God. It's the whole thing. In the, um, in the early 1700s, around uh, uh, probably 1730, 1740, something like that, there was a young man who was writing hymns, writing songs of praise to God in, in Great Britain. His name was Charles Wesley, and he wrote hundreds of them, hundreds of songs. Probably the one that most of us could sing is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because we hear it at Christmas. But he wrote a lot of others. And one of his most well-known hymns is, is called, And Can It Be? And in that 
writing, he just expressed his amazement at the grace of God. He said, amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? About um, 30, 40 years later, there was another man in, in Great Britain. He was not a hymn writer. He didn't grow up like John and Charles Wesley did. He was a slave trader. A slave trader. Taking ships down to the coast of West Africa and loading people up like animals and shipping them over to the New World, the colonies, to our ancestors. And the ones that survived that trip became the property of other people. And John Newton, one day, recognized his need for the grace of God. And he wrote down the words that might be, it's as popular a song as there is in the world. It seems that people who maybe even have no concept of what the song's really about, even know the words. You know it too. Think about them as we conclude our time together today. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved. An alcoholic. Failure. Agnostic. Partier. Liar. Drug addict. A wretch. Like me. I once was... Broken. Resentful. Helpless. Depressed. Out of control. Abandoned. Selfish. Self-destructive. Angry. Confused. Just lost. But now, I'm sober, happy, peaceful, grateful, free, alive, forgiven, I'm found. I was blind to God, to faith, to love. Pero ahora, yo veo. I see that I matter. I see past my problems. I see my Savior. I see grace. Amazing grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and raise my fears. Steve.